Professor Ian Shaw. Uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast. You're very welcome. It's good to be here. Um, so if you are at a barbecue and and I'm South African, so everything relates around barbecues or brides, as we call it. And someone asks you, what, what is your job at the moment? How would you describe that to, to, to them? Well, I first of all say this barbecue is going to be very long if I'm going to try and explain what my job is. But I mean, basically, I'm professor of toxicology at the University of Canterbury. And that means that I teach toxicology, but also teach a lot of other subjects like chemistry and biological sciences and pathology, because toxicology is part of pathology. But on the other side of it, I also do research in, into toxicological issues and particularly the impact of environmental chemicals on human health. Now, since, since you can't do that, I mean, I couldn't say to you, will you take part in one of our studies and I give you a whole load of environmental chemicals exactly to see <laughs> if it kills you or not. I mean, that's illegal. So we do work in isolated cells. And then another aspect to my job, the third part, is communicating these things, these results and the work that I do. At a broad, in a broad context to the general public by writing articles in newspapers and doing things like this, and more esoterically to the scientific journals where we report a sort of a highfalutin level, the results that we find as part of the increasing knowledge base in this particular area. And I focus particularly in my research on chemicals that mimic uh, the female hormone estrogen. Yeah. And uh, glyphosate is a chemical that's falling into that category, but there's a lot of dispute about it, which is why I have an interest in glyphosate. But it's not only glyphosate, I have an interest in lots of other things as well. Yeah, I think that dispute will be continuing for uh, the next couple of years because it's, it's, it's in and out of the media. And I'm sure uh, it's uh, yeah. obviously a, a topic of, of interest to you. Do you yeah. communicate with the public just because you're a a good communicator or was that post specifically was that is that a specific part of your job that you did it's, it's, it's a part of all academic jobs actually we're supposed to communicate our results to broadly uh, in, in, the, in the context of the public good yeah. but it's something I've always loved doing and, and you you haven't been in New Zealand long but I, I used to introduce a TV program and science on TV and so on so I've been I've been involved in science communication for a long long time probably 30 years now and uh, I write articles for newspapers and so on as well. So you you were part of the, uh, in the UK, you were part of the pesticide residues uh, committee. How long did you do that for? Yeah, I was chair, I was chair of that committee, actually, for, yeah. for 12 years. Yeah. And that, that was quite an important committee because it looked at the effects of residues of chemicals in food yeah. on human health and what were acceptable levels to expose a population to, if any levels acceptable, acceptable that would not lead to any health effects population-wise. You know, not we're not looking at individuals here, but population-wise. Yeah. And you've got a, a couple of books under your, your belt and you're busy with a new one. Maybe give a plug to, to, your, um, to your newest book and when, when you think it will be due. Is, is that a, not an answer one should ask? Uh, no, no, absolutely. I'll tell, I'll tell you very briefly what the others are first because they're relevant. Yeah, yes, please, please, the current yeah. one is not relevant. I mean, there's a, there's a book on uh, food safety which is a student textbook and that's called food safety the science of keeping food safe and another book which is called is it safe to eat which is a public uh, consumption book if you can call it that about food and looking at the issues around food safety and so on then there's another book on environmental toxicology which is a student textbook as well and a book on environmental estrogens in food which is an edited text that's got chapters by world experts basically okay and but then the current book one? 
sorry, the current one is entitled, this is nothing to do at all with what we're talking about, uh, is entitled Forensic Science, the Science Behind the Truth. And I'm, I'm very interested in forensic science and have been for a long time. I used to be a forensic scientist and I teach it here at the university. So that will be a, a sort of textbook with probably lay people will be interested. It's, it's been written in a way that lay people might be able to pick it up. So there's the plug, a very good Christmas present. It's due in 2023. Right. So you're going to have to hang on for a while. So do you want people to pre-order? Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it will be published by the Royal Society of Chemistry. I, um, I uh, saw one of your talks at TEDx, the uh, why crocodile penises are becoming smaller and why uh, it should concern men. Um, of course, uh, a, a good uh, blurb like that would draw, draw great crowds. Uh, I'm good. sure it's not like that with all your work. Good, 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 good. Um, so, so we're really talking because I read, read your paper, uh, is it time to round up, round up uh, the changing science of, of glyphosate. And um, I found as a journalist um, that often when one starts asking questions about glyphosate, you get these polar answers and you get people quite adamant that science has now proven that it's very safe. And uh, um, then they want you to just leave it at at that and, and, and the standard answer for uh, glyphosate is bad or glyphosate causes cancer is that dose and carcinogenicity has to be have to be con considered. Um, and, and that answer excludes a long-term view, which is why we're talking, but the, the dose and carcinogenicity answer is still correct to a certain extent. Um, so maybe we can start like, firstly, what is glyphosate and, and why is it effective at, it, at what it does? And then, then we go on to this question, which I actually now already asked. So, so what is glyphosate and why is it effective at, at what it does? Yeah, I mean, gly glyphosate is a wonder chemical in many ways. And when it was invented in the 1970s, actually it was rediscovered in the 1970s because it was produced for totally different reasons before that. Yeah. And Monsanto, one of their scientists, refound it and discovered that it killed plants. And why it was so wonderful is that it, it attacks, it inhibits an enzyme that's really important in plants. And this particular enzyme, we won't go into the details, I don't think it's necessary. This particular enzyme doesn't occur in animals. Yeah. And that was the holy grail of pesticides. To find a pesticide that only killed the thing you were trying to kill. Geez, that was the best thing ever. And so he got licensed really very quickly and it had to go through the process, of course. Toxicity studies were carried out and studies on the levels of glyphosate in food after it's been used were carried out to make sure that humans who ate food that glyphosate had been used around the production of wouldn't all drop dead straight away and wouldn't get long-term illnesses. And it cleared all of those hurdles with very great ease. And the philosophy at the time was, and I, I would support this, <clears throat> you know, I was around at that time, the philosophy of the time was, well, of course, you'd expect it to be safe because it doesn't affect animal enzymes. Yeah. That was 1976. There have been a lot of years since then, and glyphosate has been used for a very long time. The amount of monitoring around glyphosate has been really quite small. Yeah. And a lot of people might say and do say, well, there's nothing much happened, so therefore it's safe. Mm. And that's true to some extent. But what we might expect to happen in the environment, and we'll talk about this more later on in our discussion, I would imagine, what we might expect to happen in the environment is quite esoteric. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not expecting suddenly to see cows in a field with three heads and six tails. And we say, oh, there we are. That's what glyphosate does, <laughs> doesn't it? 
not like that. It's very, very much more esoteric. But the point that's very important is over those years since 1976, science has moved on a very long way. And we understand chemicals that interact with the environment and chemicals that interact with people through the environment, like as residues in food, very, very much better than we did then. Yeah. Give you an example. The way the food residues were determined in the glyphosate license application right back in the 70s was to do a study which gives a value called the maximum residue level. And this, this value, as you know, is a value that is, is used to determine whether a product containing a chemical is, is allowed to be on the market. And it's determined by using the chemical, as the label says, and then measuring the levels in food that's being grown with that chemical, and then saying the level is the maximum level there should be, because that's when the chemicals used properly, you get that level. And if it exceeds that, that food cannot be consumed. So that's not actually based on toxicology at all. It's based on agronomy. Yeah. And that's a very important value. So what they did as part of the licensing application was to say, look, let's assume that somebody gets exposed to the MRL in a series of different foods. Let's look at what that would mean in terms of total intake. And they did exactly that. Assuming, of course, that nobody would get exposed to more than the MRL, because if the chemical was used properly, you wouldn't be. They were the data that was used, that were used as part of the license application. In a more modern context, you would have to do field studies mm. where the chemical was used in a field in the way it was going to be used and the residues were measured in that food. Yeah. So the, the, the result came out that the levels are all very low in all foods and there's not a problem. At the time, that was perfectly reasonable thinking. Now I look back and think, wow, they got away with that. That yeah. was amazing. It doesn't mean it's a problem, but it means that we don't know. Yeah. But in very much more recent years, and I'll shut up on this issue, in very much more recent years, the last two or three years, scientists and governments have been looking at residues of glyphosate in food and they're finding it in places we wouldn't expect. Honey, for example. Yeah, yeah. Low levels admitted and the amount present in food is way below anything that would cause harm to people eating honey. One fact, it's also been found in wheat and to some extent in potatoes. So you add these things up and the question is, what, the, what does that mean? It might mean nothing. I'm not, not saying it does, right. but we're finding it in food and it was not expected to be there. That to me means that we need to just revisit this. We need to go back. Not that we should ban it, but that we should look and see what the real residue situation is and what the real potential effect on humans might be. Now, the honey situation is a really interesting one because in New Zealand, glyphosate is used in a very specific way and it's quite different to other places in the world. In other places in the world, particularly the States, glyphosate can be uh, used to treat Roundup Ready crops, they're called. And these are plants that have got a gene inserted into them that make them resistant to glyphosate. Now, you can't get cleverer than that. No, you can't. <laughs> so, it's brilliant, utterly brilliant. You know, the person got a Nobel Prize for it, it's pretty brilliant. But if you put that gene into wheat or potatoes or cotton, it means that the farmer can plant his crop, spray the field with glyphosate. The glyphosate won't kill the wheat, the cotton and the other stuff, but it will kill the weeds in the soil very easy. What it also means is that those crops are getting high doses, high applications of glyphosate. Yeah. And therefore, the residues could be appearing 
because of the glyphosate on those crops in those countries. That should not be the case for New Zealand because we don't allow genetically modified plants or anything genetically modified, actually, or even experiments using genetically modified organisms, unless they're specifically approved. And so why is it appearing in New Zealand? And I've been looking at this a bit, and this isn't my idea. Uh, it's coming out generally now from, from scientists in the field. That is, for example, in New Zealand, what tends to happen is we have a rotational structure in agriculture. So you might see a field, and one day it's got lovely grass on it and the cattle are grazed on it. The next day you drive past it in your car and the whole thing is completely dead. You think, that's weird, that field's died. Well, it's died because the farmers sprayed it with glyphosate. And they sprayed it with glyphosate because then they're going to, two weeks later, reseed it. It might be with brassicas for forage feeding during the winter. It might be with better grass to provide better uh, intake for cattle later on in the year. But one of the things that's grown extensively in New Zealand is clover. And you'll see where I'm going with this. It's a long story. Sorry about this, but you'll see where I'm going in a minute. No, please, please, please. The clover's grown because New, New Zealand soils are very poor in nitrate. Yeah. And so we grow clover, and this has been done since the 1800s. We grow clover to fix nitrogen to increase the nitrogen concentrations in soil. Clover attracts bees. So when the farmer decides to spray his field, which contains grass and clover with glyphosate, the plants don't die straight away, and the bees are still foraging on those plants. So the bees are then being exposed to the glyphosate on those plants, and they take it back to their hives as honey. And just a few weeks ago, and I won't say where I was walking, but I was walking with my dogs and we were watching, my partner and I were watching uh, an apiarist, the beekeeper, spraying the herbage around his beehives. And I'm not talking about one or two beehives here, I'm talking about 30 or 40. Yeah. And the reason is that grass grows very long, it grows in front of the beehives and the bees don't like going in through the grass to get home. So you spray it and I bet it was glyphosate he was spraying with. So that would have contaminated the hives and everything as well. And the bees will land on the platform on the front, get a bit on their feet, go into the hives and transfer that to the honey. So there's lots of ways that glyphosate can get into honey. Yeah. It's much more difficult to see how it's getting into grain, unless, yeah. of course, we're buying grain from countries that round that ready crops are using. That's not supposed to be the case, but you never know. It might be lurking in there uh, somehow. Sorry about that very long answer, but you see the, the length of the story yeah. that leads to residues in food, and it's not obvious. Yeah, for sure. It isn't obvious. It's interesting, when I was um, still in South Africa uh, working for Farmers Weekly magazine, we bought a range of vegetables from a bunch of supermarkets and wanted to send it for uh, MRL testing and see what we found. And before we did this, we asked a couple of scientists and people at the labs what they were expecting to see. And they said, well, they expected to see that strawberries would have very high MRL because um, they were close to the ground and they felt the splash did something. And um, of course, as journalists, we want it to be sky high so we can you know, um, uh, write an article about it. Got all the results back and it was so low that there wasn't anything detectable in any of it. So it was vegetables, a range of vegetables from uh, three different supermarkets. Obviously, this is not a scientific test. You know, we just wanted to test the waters. And, and it shows you that things crop up in unexpected places or do not crop up in unexpected places sometimes. And, and that's why the reanalysis of it is, is, is important. 
important. And I, that, I mean, it's a really very good point. And that's a statistical issue, actually, which is why your study was completely useless. Yes, I know. Sub- <laughs> My wife know. told me, like I said, she's a, was a good toxicologist. Like, this is useless, but we did it nonetheless. <laughs> well, here's some advice for you. Listen to your wife in future. Yeah, I know. <laughs> as you know i used to i used to chair the british government's pesticide working party which was is is a group that looks on behalf of government at residues in food and determines whether mrls have been exceeded and advises government what they should do if they're exceeded and i i chaired that for 12 years and i i have not got a clue how many tens of thousands of samples we analyzed in that time it was rare very very rare to get anything that exceeded the mrl it wasn't rare to find residues and it wasn't rare to find residues that we would regard as high, i.e. they were a quarter of the MRL. Yeah. In terms of their toxicological effects, probably as near to zero as you can get being yeah. realistic. However, the important thing is that if you have residues of a particular chemical in food, we need to look to see if there might be cocktail effects of different foods containing the same chemical. So you might be getting a bit from your cabbage, a bit from your spuds, and a bit from something else, and they all add up to something greater than the MRL. Most regulatory authorities, this applies to New Zealand, don't take account of cocktail effects at all because it's very difficult to do. But in New Zealand, we do have a a system whereby food is purchased, I think it's on a four-year scale. I I used to be in charge of this. I worked for ESR as their head of food safety uh, for five years when we moved to New Zealand, and I used to be in charge of this. And and we would buy, but they was bought statistically for us by an agency, so we had no part in, in where it was bought from or what it was to make it absolutely anonymous. We would buy a whole load of foods and ask people to prepare these foods or simply ask people to buy their own food and prepare a meal. And we would take the whole meal and measure a whole list of pesticides and metals and other things in it to see what people were really getting exposed to. Mm-hmm. In the time I was there, we never found anything that was worrying. So that's actually good news, yeah. very good. But the other side of the uh, uh, story, I suppose, is the impact on the environment. Yeah. Impact on people is probably quite small of most of these things because the regulatory systems are quite good yeah. and the licensing systems for allowing these things through are quite belt and braces. But with something like glyphosate or other pesticides, what are we doing with them? We're spraying them on the environment. So that's where they're going. The environment's getting a big, high concentration of it, a high dose. We're getting the bits that might get into our food, which is probably irrelevant. But with glyphosate, for example, we we actually don't know what the environmental impact is in New Zealand. And in many, many other countries in the world, we don't know either. And that's something I think we need to think a bit about. Yeah, well, I'm going to skip straight ahead to that question now because uh, I've got a couple of questions. But then, uh, right into that, uh, uh, why why is a is a short lived environmental impact not necessarily the case? And you address that in 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 your paper. Yeah, if if we look at glyphosate and the original data that went into its license application or the application for permission to market, authority to market in 1976. There were very few or no long-term studies carried out. All of the studies that were in there looked at short-term effects. And that was perfectly okay at the time because there was no inkling that this could have long-term effects. But if we just move forward very quickly 
to an area of controversy, and we've sort of touched on this a little bit right at the very beginning of our conversation. Now, I'm interested in chemicals that mimic estrogen. Yeah. And usually to look to look at a chemical or to decide whether it might mimic estrogen, somebody like me can look at it and say, bloody hell, that structure looks a bit like estrogen. We're going to investigate that. If you do that with glyphosate, I've done this and I've said this and I'm deeply embarrassed about it. It doesn't anything. Go away. Stop bothering me. Sorry, yeah. sorry, that uh, the, the, the line just cut out when you said that last sentence. Could you just uh, repeat that? I apologize. Yeah, certainly. If, if a chemical mimics estrogen and it might have the same effects as estrogen, you know, effects on reproduction and growth and development, then normally those chemicals look like the estrogen molecule. They have structural analogies. They have parts of their molecule that look like estrogen. If you and people did gave me uh, the structure of glyphosate and said, would this be an estrogen mimic or would this be estrogenic, as we call it? I would and did say that, go away, stupid. It's nothing like estrogen. It cannot be estrogenic. However, a group in Thailand did an experiment and I'm laughing because it was deeply embarrassing because I said it would be negative and it was positive. Yeah. And what they did was they, they got a cell line and this cell line is a human breast cancer cell line when I grow in my lab. And the, the cell expresses the estrogen receptor. And when the estrogen receptor is occupied, the cell divides. So you can measure whether something mimics estrogen by putting it into that cell. And if that cell divides, you say, well, it must be mimicking estrogen because the cell's dividing. So you do an experiment, you grow millions of cells that you put some estrogen in, they all divide. Okay, that's proved it. Then you put a chemical in like um, genistane, which is a well understood estrogenic compound and it divides. You say, great, that means it's responding to things that look like estrogen and not only estrogen. They did exactly that. Then they put glyphosate in and the cell, it's not funny, but it was at the time and the cells divided. I was yeah. gobsmacked. In fact, the authors wrote to me saying, you were wrong, you idiot, basically. And I was very, very surprised indeed. At this. And they did a further experiment, which to me was belt and braces. They put another chemical called fulvastrant and I won't go into the details of this, but it inhibits the estrogen receptor. And when they put this in and they put estrogen in as well, the estrogen had no effect. That's just what you'd expect because the fulvastrant stopped it having its effect. When they put fulvastrant in with glyphosate, also glyphosate had no effect. So their conclusion was categorically glycogen, uh, uh, glyphosate, I said glycogen, sorry, glyphosate acts via the estrogen receptor. Mm. It is estrogenic, even though it doesn't look like it is. Yeah. So then I sat down and thought, oh, I can't be uh, done by this. So we'll, we'll have a look at the structure of this more carefully to see if something we've missed. And there was nothing in that structure that would make you think it was estrogenic at all. So then we went one stage further. So did other groups around the world. But I'll tell you what we did, and we're just about to publish this actually. Um, one of my postgraduate students uh, began to look at very sophisticated molecular modeling programs based on a thing called the Schrodinger platform. These aren't just simple little things that, you know, you require six months, seven months training to even be able to open, <laughs> open the program. And again, I smile because I'm not very good at doing this. And in fact, I can't do it. So I have to have clever young people to do it for me. And we just looked in this. We modeled the estrogen receptor by using uh, X-ray crystallographic coordinates from its structural determination. And you can produce a three-dimensional model of the receptor. And you can look at what happens when you put other chemicals into that system to see how it interacts. So we put, we put estrogen in and it basically went 
sucked it straight into the binding cleft, bound it with the hydrogen bonds where we'd expect in the orientation we would expect. So that told us what we were doing was okay. We then put another chemical, genistain, again in, and it did exactly the right things. And we thought we're onto a winner here. Then we put glyphosate in, and boy, it bound. Yeah. And we thought, well, this is very weird. And then, of course, you can look at this in three dimensions, basically magnified multiples of millions upon millions of times. So you can actually see where the molecule interacts with the receptor. And we saw that it only interacts at one end. Now, I won't go into the detail because you don't want to hear me talking for three hours on this. But if it only interacts with one end of the receptor, it cannot be estrogenic. It's got to react with both ends because to work, it's got to pull the two ends together. And that causes a change in the shape of the receptor, which means it goes along to DNA, binds to DNA and says, be female, do all the female things, make all the proteins that you need to make to be female. But on further scrutiny, as I say to my students, because they like that word, we looked at it. And in fact, three water molecules bound to glyphosate and linked it to the other end of the estrogen receptor. So we thought this is intriguing. We're on to something here. Then another paper was published that showed that the work of the first group in Thailand was wrong. Oh. And they did work in a different cell, but with the same estrogen receptor expressed. And glyphosate did not bind to the estrogen receptor, did not cause the cells to divide. This is just a year ago. So then we all held our breath a bit and thought, well, who's right? So now the other people around the world will be doing the same. And I suspect it's a bit of a race. I've got a PhD student, sadly, the University of Canterbury agreed to fund him and just changed their mind, so I won't have him next year, unfortunately. But he was going to look at, the, at glyphosate in the two different cell lines in the same laboratory at the same time to see if the two cell lines give different results or was it because of the way the experiments were carried out in the two different labs. Mm. So we may never know that from my lab, but I wouldn't mind betting somebody else somewhere is doing just the same now because something's wrong you know one of one of one of the experiments is telling a lie yeah so so, so just maybe uh, what we didn't touch on uh, why would it binding uh, or uh, why would it uh, it being estrogenic or mimicking uh, uh, that be a problem for health or be a problem for for a human being yeah yeah if if Oestrogen's a really important molecule. Yeah. You're a bloke with a beard. You have fairly low oestrogen levels because if you had high oestrogen levels, you wouldn't have a good beard. So you're a good man. What I'm getting However, out of this is I have a good beard and I, I thank you. That's the first time someone's told me and I'm glad people will hear this on air now. You're very, you're very welcome, but it's not growing because of oestrogen, I'll tell you. That. <laughs> but even though you're a good man with a good beard, you do produce estrogen. Yeah. And the, the ratio of estrogen with testosterone, the male hormone, which is making your beard grow, is really important. And that link between the two determines growth and development. So if we change that ratio, it changes growth and development. Now, when, when I give lectures on this to my students, they all sort of titter because they think it means growing breasts, growing a bigger penis, growing a vagina, all, all those sort of things. It doesn't. It, that's part of it. But there's lots of other aspects of the cell which are dependent upon this ratio of estrogen to uh, testosterone. So if, you've, if you're a normal bloke and you've got your normal ratio of estrogen to testosterone and you start getting exposed to chemicals that mimic estrogen, it changes that ratio. 
Yeah. And so therefore it will change the growth and development, particularly a male child in utero, if the mother's exposed to these chemicals and they get to the baby yeah. via the umbilical cord and crossing the placental barrier. Yeah. And they do that. I won't, I won't digress for long, but I did quite a big research project with colleagues at the University of Auckland, probably nearly 10 years ago now, where we looked at those chemicals and in humans, and we showed that they cross the placental barrier hmm. and therefore the child is exposed to them. Then if we just move forward a little bit, there's been a lot of work done around the world on the changes in growth and development. And for example, the human sperm count is declining. Yeah. And we now are pretty certain, you can never prove this, we're pretty certain that this is because of the increased exposure to estrogenic compounds in the environment. And secondly, girls are coming into puberty earlier. Again, we can't prove it, but the signal for puberty, which we do know is estrogen, and girls turn on their estrogen production at a particular time in their development around about age 12. And that initiates the uh, puberty process. And that goes on probably until sort of 13, 14, depends on individuals. But in some places in China, puberty is beginning at age five. Hmm. So something's influencing that. And the general feeling is it's due to exposure to estrogenic chemicals. Now, it doesn't mean that these chemicals are only nasty, horrible pesticides we should ban. Yeah. They're natural chemicals in food as well. Soy, yeah. for example, contains genistein, a chemical I talked about earlier, yeah. and genistein is estrogenic, and lots of soy is used all over the place in food. And in fact, I always ask if I give a public lecture, I tell, I tell the audience about genistein in soy, and I say, how many people have eaten soy today? And so the two people put their hands up. And if I can be, if you'll forgive me, they're usually the slightly cranky uh, vegan people that only eat soy and nothing else. And then I say, well, what if I told you that soy is in all bread sold in New Zealand? Yeah. How many people have eaten soy? And then all the hands go up. Yeah. So it's yeah. in places that you might not expect it to be. So yeah. we are exposed to these things all the time. And this sort of cocktail of chemicals from the environment, from our food, might be adding to this. And the World Health Organization in 2013 produced a magnificent report, the state of science of estrogen mimics or xenoestrogens, I can't remember the exact title, where they reviewed this, the evidence across the world. And the conclusion was <clears throat> these chemicals are affecting growth and development. Mm. And at the time of that huge report being written, they had identified around about 800 uh, compounds that were estrogenic. So when we talk about glyphosate, it's only one of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we, if we looked at the impact of glyphosate on its own, it's probably insignificant yeah, in yeah. humans. But on the environment side, it's probably more significant. It's also a talk about diet and what you get in bread and, and you know, how you can change the, the content. But of course, uh, wheat and uh, soy is very easy to grow. South Africa has massive soy production. And if you follow, if you use all the suggested Bayer um, soy packs of chemicals, then then you don't have a, 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 a you you you're almost guaranteed a large harvest because yeah, 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 anything yeah. that would negatively impact it is is, is going to to but the, 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 the reason the reason that soy is putting lots of foods is nothing to do with the fact that it's grown easily or, or anything like that it's because it's high protein content oh, okay. yeah. and so for example if a wheat has low protein then bread doesn't you can't make bread easily because the protein gluten is really important to bind the particles together to make a good squishy dough you know you need it for ages to bring those proteins out 
Yeah. And if they're not there, you don't get very good bread. And New Zealand uh, wheat has low protein levels. So one of the reasons we add it is to add the protein to enable the bread making process to work. And, and in, in other countries, they might, they might add it just to add protein. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I know in uh, in a couple of countries, you know, uh, uh, African countries that people eat largely uh, uh, corn-based um, porridges. There are yeah. things added just because you need that extra need protein for, for large <clears throat> yeah. uh, amounts of people. Um, but we can blame it all on South Africa if you like. <laughs> we can. We can. <laughs> I'm not there anymore. <laughs> so, um, so th that is the one thing. Maybe we can just uh, talk about the, the thing we touched on in the beginning uh, about the dose and carcinogenicity because yeah. the big thing that the media always covers and the agriculture media and the general media is once again new report says glyphosate is carcinogenic and yeah. then it's in the news for a week or two and then it just disappears and then you can just wait a couple of months and it's sure to to okay, rear its yeah. head again and 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 most journalists get the facts uh, not 100 right so so why is the carcinogenicity is it relevant is it not relevant because it's it's, it's tied to dose um yeah. is it a huge concern for you or or, or not really looking at just generally first and something you just said is really very important that carcinogenicity is tied to dose yeah some toxicologists and i'm one of them believe in the precautionary principle and this used to be the way all toxicology was carried out until the mid-1980s when uh, governments and pharmaceuticals companies said, bloody hell, if toxicologists say everything's going to kill us, we'll never, we'll never approve anything. So we, we sort of had a more rational look and included dose very, very much more in our calculations than we had previously. But for, some, for carcinogens, a lot of toxicologists would say carcinogens are unacceptable. The dose is irrelevant. So we need to put that on the table as well. But I'll, I'll discuss that in a few minutes' time. The, the thing about glyphosate, which is really important, is the evidence that suggests it's a carcinogen. And the, the way that the WHO, the World Health Organization, do this is to assess the literature and to see if the evidence suggests that something, A, might be a carcinogen or is a carcinogen in humans. And the, the data for glyphosate was assessed and it was decided it's very likely or it's likely to be a human carcinogen. And that's a very, very important statement. And that was based on a series of studies in animals which show pretty compellingly that it is a carcinogen and epidemiological studies in humans which show that farmers exposed to glyphosate have higher incidences of certain tumors than people not exposed. The criticism around that was, hold on a minute, these farmers were exposed to lots of other things as well. And it might have been one of the other things that led to the cancer. However, I've looked quite closely at these studies and it looks to me like, mo I've got to be careful here, most of the other variables have been accounted for and the glyphosate sticks out like a sore thumb in being the common factor in all of them. But it doesn't mean there aren't some other pesticides that are common factors in some of them. Yeah. And so there is a little bit of uncertainty there. In New Zealand, when that uh, deliberation came out of the uh, WHO, I think it was in 2014, I can't remember, somewhere around about that, the New Zealand government, I'm, I'm surmising, thought, oh, hell, glyphosate is one of the most important chemicals for our agriculture. Agriculture is the single most important export. We can't not use glyphosate. We'll get an expert in. 
to look at whether it really is a carcinogen or not. So they got a, a toxicologist who's a clinical toxicologist, not a regulatory toxicologist called Wayne Templin. And he looked at the results and said, no, it's not a carcinogen. The data are misleading. I'm very sorry. I'll write you a report on that. And the New Zealand government said, thank you very much indeed. We accept that. Glyphosate is not a carcinogen. This was, a, I'm quite critical of this report because I think it was, it sort of fell into the lap of what New Zealand wanted at that time. Other countries banned glyphosate. Holland did almost pretty well straight away. That was also wrong. They overreacted. Yeah. After a while, they pulled back and said, hold on, we'll, we'll restrict its use so that we reduce exposure to it rather than saying, sorry, we're not going to accept any exposure. That, to me, seems to be the sensible route. And France, in fact, have done just that. They've said, and I don't know the specifics, but you know, we won't allow glyphosate to be used for X, Y and Z because we don't think it's very important. Yeah. I did a, a program recently, well, a, a six o'clock news interview recently about this and talked about the three uses of glyphosate. The first use is in home gardens. Yeah. The second use is by councils to spray the edge of the road. The third use is by farmers in their agricultural practice. We don't need it for gardening. A lot of gardeners would say, well, yes, we do, but it doesn't change the economy. A few weeds in your lawn along your drive aren't going to stop the world. Yeah. We also don't need to have all of the edges of our roads pristinely dead. No. I've never, I'd never seen that until we moved to New Zealand 23 years ago. You know, in other countries, there's all sorts of plants going by the side of the road. Here, we like them dead. And yeah. I've talked to councils about this, and they tell me the reason is that it, it impairs people's vision and you get more accidents if there's plants growing by the side of the road. Fine, but let's use something else to do that. They'll now say, no, there isn't anything else. Well, think of something else, yeah. because the use of glyphosate there is very high indeed. Then you'd say, well, let's use it in agriculture then. And I'd say, fine, because we've got rid of two uses. So some impact on the environment has now been hit on the head. But let's look at agriculture. What do we use it for? We use it to kill weeds on a field that you might then use to grow a crop on. We use it to kill pastures so you can seed them with something else. And the reason for doing this is to reduce erosion in those fields. And erosion is a big problem in New Zealand. So by using glyphosate, you don't need to plow and that decreases erosion. My comment would be, but I've never done this, would be to look at which of those are really important uses of glyphosate and which are less important, rate them and get rid of the ones that are less important. Yeah. And that then will further reduce the impact. So that we're accepting that we'd use glyphosate but we're reducing its impact and reducing our exposure to it by only doing the things that absolutely need it. Yeah. And I think that's really important. But then you're crazy. Well, I didn't, didn't answer your question then. You're thinking, I wish this man would keep on topic. But I just wanted <laughs> you to know that so you can see the risks yeah. there. Yeah. So the question is, if you're exposed to a carcinogen, and assuming glyphosate is a carcinogen, and I'll talk about whether I think it is or not in a few minutes' time. If you're exposed to a carcinogen, does the dose make any difference? Well, of course it does. Yeah. If you have a huge amount of it, the risk of getting cancer is very much greater than if you have a tiny amount of it. But if you have none of it, the risk is zero. So, yeah. you know, you've got to think about that. So then we have to look at the benefit. If the benefit is that we'll grow better crops, make more money by exporting our crops, then does that act? outweigh the risk of somebody getting cancer? I don't know what the answer to that question is. Yeah. 
a risk assessor might say, well, you know, we can accept a few people a year getting cancer, but the people getting cancer might say, hey, hold on a minute, yeah, yeah. I won't accept yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a genuine debate, and I'm not trying to make a decision on that, on those grounds at all. But if you look at, for example, honey, and I've done this, and so have other people, if you look at the amount of glyphosate we get in honey, the risk of developing cancer from that is so close to zero, we shouldn't even worry about it. If on the other hand, you're a farmer spraying your field with glyphosate, your exposure to glyphosate during that spraying process and making up the spray is quite large. But WorkSafe New Zealand would say, but you've got to wear protective clothing to stop you getting exposed to glyphosate. And that's absolutely true. And if you do, you won't get exposed. It's perfectly safe. Now, I live very much, if I could turn the camera around, you'd see lots of fields here. I live right in the middle of nowhere and right in the middle of farms. And I know the farmers really well. And I know jolly well that they don't wear protective clothing. And why they don't is a hot summer's day and, you know, to wear a full body yeah. suit with a helmet and mask and goggles and everything else and gloves and over boots. They think, oh, you know, it's too much. I won't do that. So they don't. So they are being exposed. And presumably that's what was happening in the studies where there was a link between cancer and exposure to glyphosate. And those studies went one stage further, which if we did them in New Zealand, we'd see the same. They measured levels of glyphosate in the urine of people working with glyphosate and found it. So that meant that they were being exposed because it was being excreted in their urine. So to summarize, the risk to the general population from glyphosate was residues in food, and being exposed to it as you walk along the road, even if the council have used it, is infinitesimally tiny. Yeah. The risk to farmers is greater, but is preventable. But, and we need to talk about this, and I'll keep introducing it until you do, the risk to the environment is a very different situation. Very, yeah. very different. Um, there's also, I mean, there's questions about, about why people spray... Um spray to kill off plants so they can replant or reseed uh, because in in certain places where 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 regenerative practices are are practiced i know regenerative is a very key key thing in the media at the moment but if you look at at, at just in the in the states for example or some areas uh, uh, in south africa people don't believe in using glyphosate they'll rather work uh, uh, cut things back into the ground or they'll use specific choppers that they make and they chop things up and they can reseed into that or plow it into so there's there's just there's production method questions that can also answer these questions we might yeah. cut glyphosate yeah. out just by using new techniques to to work yeah. plants back into yeah. the ground or by by killing yeah. it, killing it all um yeah. so so the, the other question that was very interesting is is um hormone-mediated responses or uh, receptor-mediated tumors. Um, so how, how did you get to that point where you started seeing this or started noticing that, that this is, is something that you needed to investigate and what, what, what was the, the answers you got to? This is a really good question. And if I go back to the Wayne uh, Temple report, this is a, the toxicologist that wrote the report for the Environmental Protection Authority that said that glyphosate is not a carcinogen. What, what he missed was, was a form of carcinogenesis called non-genotoxic carcinogenesis. And this, normally chemicals are carcinogens because they bind to DNA and they change the DNA, which makes the cell grow, grow uncontrollably. However, some chemicals don't work by binding to DNA. They work by interacting with another biological system that causes a cell to divide. 
So let's look at glyphosate in that context. If glyphosate is an estrogen mimic, and that's a big question mark, a huge question mark, because you know the evidence is saying one thing one time and another thing another time, and it binds to a breast cancer cell with the estrogen receptor expressed, then that breast cancer cell will divide. So that makes it a cancer promoter, not a cancer initiator. However, so that would mean if a woman's got breast cancer and she got exposed to an estrogenic chemical, that would mean that her breast cancer would probably grow faster. And there's lots of discussion about this with soy and food and so on. But on the other hand, if a cell divides, when it divides, its DNA is very vulnerable to all sorts of things. It could be exposure to UV light, it could be exposure to natural chemicals in the environment. It could be exposure to chemicals that are naturally in a cell that might change that DNA. And we know that when cells divide more frequently, they're more prone to turning into cancer cells. So if you've got a cell that's got an estrogen receptor in it and you expose it to estrogen, that cell will divide. So if you've got a fairly high estrogen concentration, then the cell will divide frequently and therefore it's more prone to cancer. That's why women get breast cancer because their cells are exposed to estrogen and they're more frequently dividing. And therefore the, the cancer cell is, could just by, just by chance, you could develop a cancer cell. The risk, the chance of that development of a cancer cell goes up the more times the cell divides. So if we've got chemicals that mimic estrogen in the environment and we're exposed to them, then that will make cells with estrogen receptors divide more frequently, which makes them more prone to developing cancer. Now you might be thinking, and I hope you are, because I'm gonna prove you wrong, but you're too clever, you're probably not thinking this at all. You might be thinking, oh, but that's only female cells. Well, it's not, mm. because lots of cells have estrogen receptors and we're doing work in my lab at the moment on colon cells and they express a particular form of the estrogen receptor. And we're looking at whether if they're exposed to estrogenic com compounds in food, which gets to the colon, uh, it, could that be part of the mechanism of colon cancer development? We don't know the answer to that. And we're not the only people asking that question. But the point is there are lots of different cells that express estrogen receptors. And so exposure to estrogenic chemicals could cause them to divide, which could increase the cancer rate. And that, that would be termed a receptor-mediated carcinogenesis. And that's non-genotoxic. That was missed from the, that report. Didn't even think about non-genotoxic carcinogenesis. And it might well be that the incidence of cancer in those studies that was carried out in farmers could be non-genotoxic. Hmm. Of course, there's areas in New Zealand where something like colon cancer is, is more prevalent. And... Yep. Um, uh, the the parameters of the study. So basically what you're saying is the parameters of the study need to be shifted to include more things. Yeah. And, and I think some of the answers that's been, been, uh, uh, been out there for the reasons for colon cancer in those communities have maybe not included all the necessary parameters in that. Maybe your study. Uh, uh, and, and also, I, I mean, that's a very, very good point, Gerhard. And, but I think there's, we've got to be very careful because it's very easy to link an effect with something and think that thing then is the cause. Yeah. <clears throat> it might not be. And the, the example of colon cancer is really good because the highest incidence of colon cancer is in Canterbury. And the very highest incidence is in the center of Christchurch. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I'm right. I was talking to an epidemiologist the other day about this. And they, in their normal, cautious way at a dinner party, refused to accept or not what I was saying. But I think, I think that the highest incidence in the world of colon cancer is central Christchurch. Oh, wow. And if you look at what can cause colon cancer, all sorts of stuff. So let, let's, just, let's say that glyphosate caused colon cancer. No, we don't. We don't know whether it does <clears throat> at all. But if it does, you might say, oh, Canterbury, that's a really agricultural area. Oh, my God, it's glyphosate that's responsible. And then you write a paper on it and everyone stops glyphosate and we ban it and, and cancer doesn't go away. Oh, right. <laughs> and like, oh, why didn't it go away? And the answer might be that you look at the water in Canterbury and you say, oh, boy, the water in Canterbury has got high levels of nitrate. Oh, boy nitrate can cause cancer it's the nitrates causing colon cancer ban water oh we yeah, can't ban yeah, water there you go so you go around this big circle and in fact in reality it's probably a complex combination of all of these things that are coming together to cause colon cancer and similarly to cause any other cancer and when you do the pure epidemiological work on an individual compound it almost always proves that it's not involved mm. But you can't do the complex epidemiological work of all these things interacting at the same time because it's just too complicated. Um, so, so one thing that was that that I noticed uh, when I moved here was that the the spraying of glyphosate on pastures to reseed, yep. and I was a couple of years back. I I was writing about a a, a very how shall I say a very green farmer that uh, uh, was very vocal about glyphosate. And what he'd done is he'd taken meat from supermarket shelves. Uh, it was not in New Zealand and sent it in to be tested for glyphosate. And he actually picked up residues. Um, and then my, I think I, by email, I said to you, like, that's one of my concerns. Like, is this actually a, a affecting us? Uh, how many, how much studies is being done around that type of thing in New Zealand and do you think there should be more of it and and if there is what have you seen any results that's that's of concern or that's not of concern at all or and and is that a danger or is it not a danger yeah just look at the world as a whole and then we'll go to New Zealand because they're, they're both quite interesting because they both show the same yeah. there's a big study carried out in Switzerland about a year 18 months ago might be a bit longer that looked at a whole load of foods and found glyphosate all over the place yeah but but the concentrations were infinitesimally tiny and probably just signified a general environmental contamination. What they didn't look at, uh, but in the, in the results of the paper, in the discussion they discussed this, is whether animals that have got glyphosate in their meat, like the, the case that you explained, might have been uh, fed with Roundup Ready wheat, yeah, yeah, which yeah. would almost or certainly oil. contain right, yeah. Or oil, yeah, whatever. <clears throat> New Zealand's a very different situation because we don't have any of that. But there was a study carried out by ESR in New Zealand, a very good study, actually. And, and they looked at glyphosate levels uh, in food and found glyphosate in all sorts of things, but at incredibly low concentrations. And they concluded that the concentrations were of no significance. I'm sure they're right. In, in a risk assessment context, they were just way below anything you'd ever worry about. But the point is that they're there. Yeah. And, that, and that's suggesting in the New Zealand context, that what we think glyphosate does in the environment, it isn't. Because what we think it does is we think it breaks down very quickly because glyphosate has got a chemical group in the middle of it, which is broken down by enzymes that bacteria produce. And the general feeling is you spray it on your plant, it 
some of it attaches to the plant and gets taken up and kills the plant. Some of it drops onto the soil. The stuff that drops onto the soil is broken down pretty well straight away. And therefore, residues in the environment are simply not going to occur. Well, they do. And there was a study, study carried out in South America, I think it was Brazil, I can't remember. And that, in that particular country, they use Roundup Ready crops, but they looked at levels of glyphosate in the environment and they were surprisingly high. But that's on the back of Roundup Ready crops where the use is very much higher. Yeah. We've never measured environmental levels of glyphosate in New Zealand at all. The general feeling is it won't be there because it's broken down quickly. What is it? <laughs> that's the question. So, so are there studies planned for, for this or...? I don't know. I, it's difficult to know. I mean, the EPA uh, are, are hinting, suggesting, promising that they might be going to review glyphosate. I've been yelling and screaming at this for ages. I know I'm, my, my, my voice is a very, very small voice in a wilderness. Mm. And I'm sometimes regarded as being a bit extreme in this context, I think, uh, by the EPA particularly. But I, I've been trying to get them to review it. And about three years ago, might be four years ago now, the EPA did a really good thing, I think. They did a risk assessment to look at which compounds they should review and put them in order of risk. Because any government department's got a finite resource. They can't just do everything. And it costs a lot of money to do these things. So yeah. they listed them. And I think there were 40 of them. I can't remember. And glyphosate was number, <laughs> was number 41, which actually made me smile quite a lot. Because one of the compounds higher up the list was a chemical called benzoapyrene, which is a natural component of smoke. I couldn't understand why it's there. So I sort of gently argued, take that one out and glyphosate will be number 40 and then you'll study it. <laughs> but it was decided that the risk of that was greater and so they left it in. And there may be reasons for that, but I don't understand why. So it's difficult. But if, if the EPA decided to review it, then it would give the impetus for these studies being carried out because you couldn't do a risk assessment unless you knew what our exposure and the environmental exposure to it was. What you could do is do a quick risk assessment and say, we can't do a risk assessment because we don't have all of the data. Then what the regulatory authority would often do, and I was on the advisory committee on pesticides in the UK as well, which was the licensing authority for pesticides, we would then get the company in and say, right, you need to provide us with the following data within three years, four years, 10 years, 50 years, or whatever we decide, because we're going to review your compound. If we don't have those data, we will not allow it to continue to be mm. used. Go away and do your work. And any company will go out and do that, obviously. Yeah. Would, 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 uh, uh, would New Zealand do that? It, it, I feel uh, uh, New Zealand is a very polite society. Would they word it in that way or... You've not been here long enough. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand the nuances. So the first three years, New Zealanders are very polite, and then we get pretty old. <laughs> Comes and so uh, when we do some impoliteness, I think, I think the regulators in New Zealand are not necessarily polite, but they're well aware of the fact that mm. as a very small country at the bottom of the world, if New Zealand said to Monsanto, we will not continue the licensing of your compound unless you do the following studies. Mm. Monsanto would give New Zealand the finger basically. <laughs> and so well, we, just, we just won't sell our compound in your country. Who buys it in any case? Is this a country, do people live there? Yeah. You know, they wouldn't be particularly interested. Whereas if it's the UK, South Africa, America, they're big markets. And so the companies will rent. So New Zealand very often has to follow the trend. 
Yeah. But Europe and America as well, which is unusual, are looking at glyphosate more carefully. Yeah. They haven't come out with any decisions. It's very quiet. Why it might be quiet, and I should not surmise because I don't know. Why it might be quiet is that they've got toxicologists like me looking at it and we're saying, oh my God, we don't have enough information. Yeah. And, and it, but it might put the cat amongst the pigeons if it's, that information is requested. So there could be a lot of behind the scenes discussion going on, I would imagine, to see how that information could be got to allow some sort of risk assessment. What, what I like in your roundup paper is you have the quote by Jacob uh, Bernowski uh, oh, yeah. from the Saint of Man that says, uh, they are here not to worship what is known, but, but to question it. And, and what, what really gets me going is whenever the EPA says something has to be revisited, like methyl bromide, for instance, it's always the agriculture. Well, I mean, I work in agriculture, so that's what I noticed. But it's the agriculture uh, uh, groups that say, no, 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 but the economy depends on it. And this is how much we gain from it, from exports, etc. And I sometimes feel I just can like shake them and say like, okay, we get this. But there's reasons people are asking for these chemicals to be revisited. And maybe just step back instead of just saying no, but the economic impact is so big. Maybe support it and say, yes, let's look at it. But do realize there is an economic impact. You can't just say, don't investigate it, don't ban it. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's a very, very good point, Gerhard. And, and most countries around the world, and I mean, I can only talk very authoritatively about the UK because I chaired their committee. I keep saying this, you know, I'm not trying to impress, but it, I yeah. know the way it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My role on that committee was to advise ministers about the science. Yeah. Ministers then made a decision where they put all the other stuff like economics and everything else into their decision making uh, process. Yeah. In New Zealand, it works slightly differently, but I'm not part of any of the committees in New Zealand, so I don't know how they work. I yeah. can only see it from the outside. I've been called as an expert witness a couple of times, so you see it in process, but you don't, you're not there at the decision yeah. making. Uh, I think in New Zealand, the economics is brought in at a much earlier stage. Yeah. So I think it's put in the pot with the science at the beginning, rather than the scientific decision being communicated to the people that can add everything else later. So we never know what the scientific decision is. We just know what the overall decision is, which may have used included the economics as well. There's maybe a case to make for a bit more transparency there, I assume. Um, I think so. I, I, was, I was in a meeting a couple of years ago. Uh, Monsanto held a press conference. And when I, it was after one of these reports coming out saying it might be a carcinogen, um, possibly, possibly a carcinogen. Um, and I stood up and I just asked this question. And I remember three journalists physically standing up and turning to me and saying, it's been proven it's not a carcinogen. And I was shocked by the, the how vigorous they felt about this, how strong opinions they had. And that they felt they needed to express it when it was still Monsanto in the Monsanto press conference. And we'd actually been called in to ask to help, you know, because uh, uh, to help stop misinformation. But of course, I uh, had my own opinions at that stage. So, so my question, I think maybe we, we, we can end with this is, I'm sure if a Bayer scientist listens to this conversation, they might not run to their line manager or whatever, and say to them, you have to stop producing this. 
Um, <laughs> and and it seems that that I can be completely incorrect in what I'm saying. It seems that policy or or law changes are often from public pressure as a result of public pressure. Um, and and the public and a lot of policymakers don't seem to have a firm grasp on the actual science behind it. Um, I mean, I've read a lot of papers, but I don't have a, a BSc background. I can only relate what people like you tell me and what my wife tells me. <laughs> She's a environmental scientist. And, um, and of course, like we said, uh, uh, removing it from the field as a, as a, um, as a financial impact. Um, and maybe we've got a gap now because the talk about regenerative agricultural principles is, is in the media and it's going to probably be a selling point for products overseas. Maybe this is the gap that's been needed. But from your, where you're standing, what is the next steps in this? Just more science or, or like, I, I don't know what the next step is. Uh, you can't just ban it outright. Yeah, I, I think we. I think we've got almost enough science. I think the the business about whether or not it's an estrogen mimic is quite important because we need to understand that because that might give us a handle on the mechanism of carcinogenicity. Yeah. My my feeling, and I've looked at I've looked at the data really carefully, is that it is carcinogenic, but it's not a conventional carcinogen, which points to the non-genotoxic route. <clears throat> but I think the next stage really is to. And this is what I think the EPA should be doing, is to go in there, look at all of those data, weigh them up, accepting them, not trying to dismiss them, weigh them up against the benefits, and then look at how we can minimize that risk by changing the way we use glyphosate. Whereas there seems to be a feeling that, and I'm not sure this is New Zealand only, it's, I think it applied to lots of other countries in the world, but, oh my God, it's carcinogen, ban it. Yeah. There are so many things that are carcinogenic yeah. that we yeah. can't ban. I mean, Bruce Ames, one of the best scientists in the world, I mean, he, he invented the Ames test, which is the way we look at, we determine whether things are mutagenic, whether genotoxic carcinogens or not. Yeah. He actually wrote a whole load of papers saying, not quite this, because Bruce Ames wouldn't say quite this, but, you know, I'm sorry, chaps, I was a bit wrong. I might have misled everybody. We can't just ban all carcinogens. We've got, to, we've got to live with them. We've got to use them. We've got to decrease our exposure to them, therefore decrease the impact. That's the grown-up way of dealing with it. And I think that's what the EPA should do. I don't think they will. And, and the other... Sorry, the other, the other aspect, which I keep going back to, which I've not talked about much but even if we don't talk about it we must have it on the table is the environmental impact because the impact on food chains and on creatures in the environment could be really quite great <clears throat> think of a situation where you've got a pond and in the pond you've got water fleas and fish and some creature eating the fish i don't know some sort of bird i don't know and the glyphosate changes the sex of the water fleas because that's possible therefore they can't breed because they're all females therefore the bottom of the food chain collapses therefore the fish can't survive and, and that's a food chain environmental impact we know nothing whatsoever about that yeah in the long term and that that has to be thought about yeah i th i think so too and i hope there's funding somewhere so people can just 
people like you can just invest time and students can invest time in doing it. But I, I want to come back to the Bronowski quote because I feel this is very relevant. And if you if you look at the way um, science is used in the media to prove things, you know, you just, science has said this and this has been proven and data has shown that. Um, it sometimes feels to me like once someone has said science has proven it, we're not allowed to question it again. Yeah. And when you start yeah. questioning it, uh, you're, I mean, these days you, well, with things like COVID, you'll get branded as a, as a extremist, or whatever, but with everything, the moment you question it, it's been proven, just forget about it. And, and I really like the, the approach of your paper that, that actually debugs this in a way and says, listen, if you relook and relook at things and you shift the parameters, you can, um, you, there's actually things that need to be, need to be noticed. And uh, I think that's, that's a mentality that needs to be ex uh, accepted more. And I think in that context, which goes right back to where we started, which is quite nice and poetic, yes, is yes. that the evidence that we're basing everything on at the moment was produced in the 1970s. Yeah. We've gone a long way in science. So at the time, it might have been dogmatic. We now look back and say, well, actually, we know more now. Yeah. And I think that the time that scientists think that they've proved something is a time for them to retire or resign. Because all we do is produce evidence that supports something, and it might well change with time. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've had a fairly long career in science, and I've written a great many scientific papers. And I, <laughs> I said this to my students the other day, and they're all looking at me enough to say, why on earth are we in your group then? And I don't, I think only probably one or two of them has actually held true yeah. over a 40 year period, because they've been disproved, but they were all part of the process of moving science on. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it doesn't mean you've been defeated, but there's a sort of feeling that you have been and therefore that scientists are right. Yeah, I, not. I think there was a, I read something that uh, I think my wife showed it to me was that um, a lot of older scientists try and hold on to what their yeah. studies and just yeah. fighting everyone off that attempts to question yeah. it. And then young yeah. scientists don't get time to, uh, or space to advance because they're mm. constantly bat battling this hierarchy. And I, I and that's called, that's called dogma. Yeah. And yeah. You know, if you think about DNA, the Watson and Crick dogma is that you could only go from RNA to DNA until we got AIDS and we suddenly realized the virus was going the other way. Mm. And, you know, it took a lot of, a lot of people were saying, no, can't be the case. You're very wrong. That virus cannot do that. And we said, but it does. And it took a long while to get the dogmatic scientists to change their opinion there. And now I think, it's accepted. Yes, so sorry, continue. And now it's accepted. Yeah. I, I, I think, once again, one of the quotes you had in the paper, it's important that we do not simply accept the longstanding dogma that is glyphosate, that glyphosate is safe. We must question this. Yeah. Considering our increasing understanding of glyphosate's interaction with biological systems, its long-term effects, and modify our use of this vitally important agrochemical. And what's interesting is you say vitally important. And you're not. <laughs> there's no place where you say, let's ban it. You just, oh, I would never uh, want to ban it. Never. Let's, let's investigate this and um, 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 reassess. And I yeah. think, uh, Prof, thank you. On that note, uh, uh, we can end it. Um, I really look forward to uh, more work from from your student side and uh, maybe more talks on on, on crocodile uh, penises and things at TEDx in future. Um, and uh, uh, I. I 
think uh, listeners will benefit from this. And I really thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Prof.